0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List, Book 4, Chapter 16 of War and Peace. What are your thoughts about Nikolai being able to pay off the debt with apparent ease? Do you think this will affect him in the future? Has he learned his lesson? Do you think Natasha's mother acted appropriately? Do you think there is anything else she could have done to help her young daughter? What about Nikolai's father and how he helped Nikolai? Do you think this will resolve anything between Dolokov and Nikolai? Or do you think there will be an ongoing disagreement? Um, I really didn't like Rostov, young Rostov in that moment when he was asking his dad for all that money and just playing it off like it's no big deal. He does kind of redeem himself when he breaks down and starts crying at the very end of it. You think, oh, at least he finally showed that it actually does hurt him to ask this. But when he's just kind of like, oh, it happens to everyone and the poor dad is like, oh, yeah, I guess it does happen to everyone because the dad is so um, unwilling to see finance as a problem, even when it's staring him in the face like this. Ryan Dundev says, The ruination of the family fortune has been hinted at again and again. Now it seems inevitable at this point. I imagine this may be something Nikolai feels responsible for in time as he grows up and becomes less of an absolute sausage. However, it seems like his father's lack of discipline and guidance here that's really at the root of it. The old Count seems to never have had to learn what harsh and unforgiving consequences there can be, but they all appear to be about to find out. Ripster 66 says, Honestly, this chapter was sort of anticlimactic. All this build-up of Nikolai's poor decision-making, followed by his regret and despair, only to have his father simply raise the money for him. Has he learned from his misadventure? I guess we'll find out. Dolokhov is still more enemy than friend, I would wager. I thought Natasha's mother was funny. Natasha wants to be considered grown up, so her mother flippantly treats her that way. Well, then marry him. She knew Natasha was too young for a proposal, and I think she acted properly, even intervening for Natasha to help let him down. Yeah, I do think she handled that pretty well. You know, the sarcasm, the um the kind of daring her to go ahead with it attitude. I do I think she did a really good job. Um, now, what are we up to here? Book five? Wow. Book five. God damn, that happened quickly, didn't it? Um, 1806 to 1807 is the title, and let's just jump into chapter one. I didn't get a chance to, um, to translate it as promised, um even though it is a really short chapter. Unfortunately I didn't get through it. I did get about well know, maybe one third of the way through it, but I didn't finish it, so I'm just gonna read you the Maud version. After his interview with his wife, Pierre left for Petersburg. At the Torzok post station, either there were no horses or the postmaster would not supply them. Pierre was obliged to wait. Without undressing, he lay down on the leather sofa in front of a round table, put his big feet in their overboots on the table, and began to reflect. Will you have the portmanteaus brought in, and a bed got ready, and tea? asked his valet. Pierre gave no answer, for he neither heard nor saw anything. He had begun to think of the last station, and was still pondering on the same question, one so important that he took no notice of what went on around him. Not only was he indifferent as to whether he got to Petersburg earlier or later, or whether he secured accommodation at this station, but compared to his thoughts that now occupied him, it was a matter of indifference whether he remained there for a few hours or for the rest of his life. The postmaster, his wife the valet, and a peasant woman selling Torzok embroidery came into the room offering their services. Without changing his careless attitude, Pierre looked at them over his spectacles, unable to understand what they wanted, or how they could go on living without having solved the problems that so absorbed him. He had been engrossed by the same thoughts ever since the day he returned from Sokolniki after the duel, and had spent that first agonising, sleepless night. But now, in the solitude of the journey, they seized him with special force. No matter what he thought about, he always returned to these same questions, which he could not solve, and yet could not cease to ask himself. It was as if... The thread of the chief screw which held his life together was stripped so that the screw could not get in or out, but went on turning uselessly in the same place. The postmaster came in and began obsequiously to beg His Excellency to wait only two hours when, come what might, he would let His Excellency have the courier horses. It was plain that he was lying and only wanted to get more money from the traveller. Is this good or bad? Pierre asked himself. It is good for me, bad for another traveller, and for himself it is unavoidable because he needs money for food. The man said an officer had once given him a thrashing for letting a private traveller have the courier horses, but the officer thrashed him because he had to get on as quickly as possible. And I, continued Pierre, shot Dolokhov because I considered myself injured, and Louis XVI was executed because they considered him a criminal, and a year later they executed those who executed him. Also, for some reason... What is bad? What is good? What should one love and what hate? What does one live for? And what am I? What is life? What is death? What power governs all? There was no answer to any of these questions except one, and that, not a logical answer, and not at all a reply to them, the answer was, you'll die and all will end. You'll die and know all, or cease asking. But dying was also dreadful. The Torsock peddler Woman, in a whining voice, went on offering her wares, especially a pair of goatskin slippers. I have hundreds of rubles I don't know what to do with, and she stands in her tattered cloak looking timidly at me, he thought. And what does she want the money for? As if that money could add a hair's breadth to happiness or peace of mind, can anything in the world make her or me less prey to evil and death, death which ends all and must come today or tomorrow, at any rate, in an instant, as as compared with eternity? And again... He twisted the screw with the stripped thread, and again it turned uselessly in the same place. His servant handed him a half cut novel in the form of letters by Madame de Souza. He began reading about the sufferings and virtuous struggles of a certain Emile de Mansfeld, and why did she resist her seducer when she loved him, he thought. God could not have put her into her have could not have put into her heart an impulse that was against his will. My wife, as she once was, did not struggle, and perhaps she was right. Nothing has been found out, nothing discovered, Pierre again said to himself. All we know is that we know nothing, and that's the height of human wisdom. Everything within and around him seemed confused, senseless, and repellent. Yet, in this very repugnance to all his circumstances, Pierre found a kind of tantalizing satisfaction. I make bold to ask, Your Excellency, to move a little for this gentleman, said the postmaster, entering the room, followed by another traveller, also detained for lack of horses. The newcomer was short, large-boned, yellow-faced, wrinkled old man with grey bushy eyebrows over, hanging bright eyes of an indefinite greyish colour. Pierre took his feet off the table, stood up and lay down on a bed that had been got ready for him, glancing now and then at the newcomer, who, with a gloomy and tired face, was wearily taking off his wraps with the aid of his servant and not looking at Pierre. With a pair of felt boots on his thin, bony legs and keeping on a worn, nankeen-covered sheepskin coat, the traveller sat down on the sofa, leaned back his big head with its broad temples and close-cropped hair, and looked at Bezikov. The stern, shrewd and penetrating expression of that look struck Pierre. He felt a wish to speak to the stranger, but by the time he had made up his mind to ask him a question about the roads, the traveller had closed his eyes. His shriveled old hands were folded, and on the finger of one of them Pierre noticed a large, cast-iron ring with a seal representing a death's head. The stranger sat without stirring, either resting or, as it seemed to Pierre, sunk in profound and calm meditation. His servant was also a yellow, wrinkled old man without beard or moustache, evidently not because he was shaven, but because he had never grown. This active old servant was unpacking the traveller's canteen and preparing tea. He brought in a boiling samovar When everything was ready, the stranger opened his eyes, moved to the table, filled a tumbler with tea for himself and one for the beardless old man to whom he passed it. Pierre began to feel a sense of uneasiness and the need, even the inevitability, of entering into conversation with this stranger. The servant brought back his tumbler turned upside down, to indicate he did not want any more tea, with an unfinished bit of nibbled sugar, and asked if anything more would be wanted. "'No, give me the book,' said the stranger." The servant handed him a book, which Pierre took to be a devotional work, and the traveller became absorbed in it. Pierre looked at him. All at once, the stranger closed the book, putting in a marker, and again, leaning with his arms on the back of the sofa, sat in his former position with his eyes shut. Pierre looked at him, and had not time to turn away when the old man, opening his eyes, fixed his steady and severe gaze straight on Pierre's face. Pierre felt confused and wished to avoid that look, but the bright old eyes attracted him irresistibly. All right, there we go. Another chapter down, Pierre has encountered a mysterious old man in a post station. Whoever might it be? Let's find out tomorrow, probably. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.